Okay, if everyone would find their seat. We'll get rolling. I think it was uh, mentioned last week that this, this series that, that I was terrified and trembling, and uh, I wish I could say that that's not true, but it is absolutely true, terrified and trembling. So I got to thinking about exactly why am I terrified and trembling about teaching uh, in this, this session. I came up with kind of three things. First of all... Um, when one of your pastors comes to you and says we're going to be teaching a series coming up and here's here's your book there's your book and we're teaching we're going to be teaching about God I think almost every one of you in here except possibly Rob at least would their eyes would get big wouldn't it that's kind of what happened I Ooh, I said yes to that. Um, so I didn't know what I was saying yes to. That's part of it. The second thing is I got, as I pondered the subject a little bit, even as I was starting to read this, I thought my knowledge of the subject, and it may be this way throughout eternity, but my knowledge of the subject is a teacup in the Pacific. And that puts a little fear in, into one as well to know that, no matter how hard I work at this, I'm still going to only get a little little sliver. And I think then the final piece of my terror that struck me uh, was realizing, when you think of this subject, realizing how small I am. And uh, I'm often reminded when I'm, you know, frequently or occasionally reminded of how small I am. I think back, I grew up in a small town, and, and uh, in that small town almost everybody played football and... Uh, so I was a freshman in high school, and I was an offensive guard. And so for any of the, those of you that know about football, an offensive guard should weigh a lot and be really strong, of which I was neither at, at a freshman in high school. I think I weighed 135, and I was a guard. And so the season ended, but we still had to stay. Our season, freshman season, ended, but we still had to stay out there and practice. But we had to, instead of practicing with just ourselves, they put us with the varsity players their season was still going. So I, th I think this was just for the humor of the coach, but he lined us up against the varsity, and sure enough, as a guard, I'm lined up against, you can imagine, probably the best player on our team, weighed 260, and he knew we were practicing passing plays, and so he had a lot of technique to get by me. He went straight over me. It wasn't a push me aside, hit me down, he just went straight to the quarterback, and I went straight back, and it would happen. It happened at least three times, and I thought, man, I'm not very big. <laughs> and he's a lot better than I am. And so I'm often reminded when I think of how small I am, I'm small. <clears throat> and that's just a, just a reminder for me. So as, as you know, our series here is The Doctrine of God uh, by Frame, and we're in Chapter 3 now, if any of you are uh, trying to keep up with us in the book. Um, remind you of where we are and where we're headed. Um, this week we're on the Lordship attributes, uh, particularly getting an introduction to the control of our Lord. 
looking ahead, we've got some really juicy stuff coming up, as if this is not juicy. Uh, you, you look ahead, and like April 7th, we'll deal with minor little issues like the problem of evil, uh, 14th, ethics. Uh, then, as if that's not uh, deep enough for you, just hang on till January. Uh, next year, the triune God, and we're going to deal with the Trinity. So there's, there's a lot ahead. You could look at any of these subjects along the way, but just to remind you where we're headed, it's going to be rich. It's going to be interspersed with other teaching that somewhat correlates uh, with this, so we've really, really got a, a great year ahead of us. So before we get started on today, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Almighty God, we uh, come into your presence today. Uh, to study your word, to uh, try to understand just a little bit more of you. Uh, Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit who speaks to us, who guides us. We ask your protection on our thoughts today. Uh, may, may each thing we say uh, and think uh, be accordance with your word and your will. Uh, Father, thank you so much for your church. Thank you for this time today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, today we're going to try to cover three things, really the declaration of his name and the implications of his name that he's he's taken on and given to us. Uh, Secondly, what what Frame calls the covenantal triad. And thirdly, uh, introduction uh, to God's sovereign control. So the primary passage we're going to be working out of today, and not, not solely, we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture, so if you want, get your, get your phone ready or your Bibles ready, however you like to get to the scriptures, uh, we'll be looking at several. But the primary one we're going to be looking at is this out of uh, Exodus 3, uh, 14 and 15, and particularly dealing again with the name of God that he gave to Moses and the implications thereof. So if you would, let's look at verses 14 and 15, Exodus chapter 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. First of all, we'll deal with the statement, I am who I am. Now, as I understand this, uh, just reading and frame and a few, uh, excuse me, <coughs> a few other places. It's just an extraordinarily difficult phrase to interpret. Uh, I won't even pretend to know how to pronounce these Hebrew words, um, so I'm just going to say E A E, okay? Just to keep you from laughing, those of you who know Hebrew. Um, But if you look at the E, it can be rendered in the present or the future tense. If you're just translating the word, it can be present or future. That's that's a problem. Uh, 
it, it can be to, be, to put the words to it, it can be, be to be present, to be now, or to become. If you look at the Asher, it can be interpreted who or what or that or because. So, you can see the problem of just straight translation of that, that phrase of getting exactly what it means. And so we're going to try to get an understanding of, of that. I looked at several English versions, certainly not all of them, but all of them translated it the same. I am who I am. But, you know, what, what we're going to try to deal with, what exactly does that mean? I am who I am. Some of the possible renderings of this or understandings of it would be, first of all, just, he's just saying, don't ask. Don't ask who I am. I am who I am. Don't ask me my name. That's probably not the, the way to look at it. Another one would be that it's just incomprehensible. It means something, but you're not going to get it. So I'm just going to tell you, I am who I am. You, but you're not going to get it. I guess that's a possibility. The other is, uh, another is simply that it, that he's stating that I am a a being. I am. So he's he's a being, somebody that we that that's there. Uh, he he has being. I think if we think about those, if we want to think of a couple of examples, you can contrast uh, the idea of being versus the being of other gods. So a couple of examples would be maybe Elijah and the prophets of Baal. So did the other, other prophets exist? I mean the other uh, gods exist? Or not even a being. They didn't. It's just something the, those people made up. So you had that confrontation there, and God was a being in, in that. And certainly, as we're going to look quite a bit at today, if you look at the deliverance of of the Israelites out of out of Egypt, all the gods of Egypt were not real, were they? But he is. So he is a being. So what I'm saying is there's more than a contrast there of a contrast of being versus non-being. There's a being that acts. And he and we're gonna be looking at that a lot today. He he takes action with his people. So when you really want to know something, I'd put this up here for Tom. You just look and see what MacArthur has to say about it. It's not hard. Uh, I'm just kidding, Tom. I know that's not true, but unfortunately it is for me sometimes. I stumble across some things. And think, well, I'll go see what John says. Uh, John says, this name for God points to his self-existence and eternality. It denotes I am the one who is or will be. And frame in, in the book, um, the more recent consists, consensus is that God is saying, in effect, I will be present to deliver you. I will be present to deliver you. Uh, another quote I don't have up on the slide is from frame. Other writers take the whole phrase as a variant of the self-presentation formula in which God promises to deliver or judge so that people will know that he is Lord. 
And we're going to later in our discussion today talk a little bit more about the I am. But you see, I think that it's pretty clear God through that phrase, I am who I am, he's telling us something about his presence and his sovereignty. And we can't get to exactly what that is, I don't think, but I think he's certainly making a statement in that direction. certainly could be. Now if you, you look on into, into verse 15, um, you see there's another, another word for God. Um, I see, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers. So the Lord capitalized there. Remember what that word is, is that Yahweh word that uh, Ken dealt with a little bit last week and, and uh uh, you probably recall that discussion, and, and I don't think he went in it too much, as I recall. But um, that word's derived from some uh, vowels of another name of God, and I can't go into it all, first of all, because of my inability to go into it all. But I tell you that there's a lot of discussion about that, and they arrived at the word Yahweh. And Frames comes to the conclusion you need to translate it Lord. And that's what it is. And in our English Bibles, it's generally translated Lord with at least the R capitalized, so it's set aside from other words for Lord in Scripture. I noticed uh, Joe's Bible uh, that she likes to use is the Holman Bible, which I just happened to be reading this year. It translates it Yahweh. When, when that word's used, it's, it's translated that way into English in, in that Bible. <clears throat> so, the point is that uh, that I want to make is that, and Ken made this as well, Yahweh is not merely a, a synonym of Savior or Redeemer uh, or Deliverer. So let's look at uh, Exodus uh, chapter 6. We'll take on the first few verses of that. I don't think I'll go all the way through 8, but there's, there's more to it than just the Savior and Redeemer. But the Lord said to Moses... Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of, this, of, his, hand, of, the, of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And then he goes on, moreover, how he heard the groaning of the people and worked there. Do you notice the thing there? He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. And that word is El Shaddai. You've probably heard that, that term before. God, God Almighty. Now, did God ever refer to himself as Yahweh to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on? He did. He did. 
So what does this thing mean? He did, on occasion, to Abraham, refer to himself as Yahweh. So this, this is not saying he hadn't done this before, but he's saying something different here, isn't he? So in this case, he's saying, I'm Yahweh, and before I, re- I revealed myself as God Almighty to Abraham. <clears throat> so what's the deal here? Something's changing. Okay? God revealed himself to Abraham. This is one of these things I don't know that I get. But God revealed himself to Abraham and certainly said Yahweh to him, but he was telling him, I'm almighty, and certain things happened. I think when Moses comes along here and he tells this to Moses, he's using some of the same words before, but he's saying, I'm about to show you who the Lord is. That makes sense. So he, that's the way it makes sense to me. So I looked at a couple of study Bibles just to see what they said. The NIV, I thought NIV study Bible might might capture it for us. Yahweh's name was known, but in Exodus it is being or about to be given previously unknown meaning and significance. So it was known before, but he's he's putting new definition on who the Lord is. That help? Comments? Problems? Okay, just another example is in uh, using this name, proclaiming himself. You, uh, Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2 is the, the uh, introduction uh, prior to giving the Decalogue. He starts it this way, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So before he gives the Ten Commandments, he's reminding them, I'm the Lord. Okay? And one just fascinating, I know you all are familiar with this one, that it, it's really referring to the I am part of this, these phrases. When Jesus is confronted, you know, as they're arresting him in John chapter 18, verses 4 through 6, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Okay, so that's a manifestation. There are many, but that's a manifestation of Jesus as Lord. And basically all he said is, I'm the Lord. I don't, I don't know if you can go uh, quite that far because Abraham experienced things. <laughs> and, you know, the uh, sacrifice of Isaac comes to mind. He experienced things, but he, there's a whole different power here in, in that he was blessing Abraham as kind of individual and maybe in his family. He's about to subdue the greatest nation on earth. So... If, if you will, as God unfolds his revelation of himself, he's about to make a big statement. So it's... Dennis? Mm-hmm. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, any other any other questions or Recall last week Ken made point. God is Lord. He is Lord. It's hard to grasp that. We're going to talk some more about it. What does that mean? But it's important. Okay, that's it on uh, the I am and the Lord. We're going to move on into the covenantal triad. Ken briefly mentioned it uh, last week. The Suzerain Treaty. Who had ever heard of that before last week or ever heard of that? A few have. Not too many. Uh, But Ken mentioned and referenced the use of suzerainty treaties in ancient Hittite culture. So I did what all good theologians do. I went to Wikipedia (laughs) to see what it said. It was kind of interesting. It was there. Uh, just, to, just to quote a little of it. Suzerain, suzerainty treaties and similar covenants and agreements between Near Eastern nations were quite prevalent during the pre-monarchic and monarchy periods in ancient Israel. The Hittites, Egyptians, and Assyrians had been suzerains to the Israelites and other tribal kingdoms of the Levant from 1200 to 600 B.C. The structure of Jewish covenant law was similar to the Hittite form of suzerain. Can you believe that's in Wikipedia? <laughs> okay, and that's, that's what Frame is saying. I'm going to read some from Frame here in a second. But he, he's saying that the, the covenant that God gives here is similar in form to these treaties that we find in in that culture. Um, I'll read uh, one little passage from Frame. So follow along as I read this. I think you'll see these five points come out in in this uh, paragraph. Examples of suzerainty treaties have been found in the ancient Hittite culture. In this literary form, a great king or a suzerain formulates a treaty with a lesser king, a vassal. The great king is the author. He sets the terms of the relationship. The document regularly includes certain elements. One, the name of the great king, identifying him as the author of the document. I am king such and such. Number two, an historical prologue in which the great king tells the vassal what benefits he has brought the vassal in the past. Three, the stipulations or laws that the vassal is expected to obey in gratefulness for the great king's past beneficence, often divided into a general command to love or to be exclusively loyal to the suzerain and particularly commands indicating the the ways in which this loyalty was to be expressed. Four, the sanctions or blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And five, continuity or provisions for public reading of the treaty 
royal succession, adjudication of disputes, etc. Okay, I think you probably see those points in there. And it's, it's really through this lens uh, of looking at the, what he calls the, the covenantal triads where we're driving, from looking at these suzerain treaties, he, he looks at, through it with that lens and he comes to the conclusion that we have a suzerain and he has three basic things, and this is the covenantal triad. He has control. So the great king in the treaty, in the covenant, says, I'm the one that's in control. The second thing he has, he has authority. Okay, these, these countries have taken over another country and they say, we're in authority. This treaty, this covenant, the great suzerain has authority. And finally, he has presence. We'll call that the covenant presence with his people. So the suzerain in those treaties, he doesn't run off and leave them to be taken over by somebody else or abused or not provided for. He provides for them. And there's a presence there. All right? So that's where we are. Thus the Lord has, has entered into a covenant with his people, and our Lord has control. He has authority and a covenant presence. So the first part of this book is really wrapped around that idea. We're starting now. We're going to have an introduction today of the control of God, and next week is more on that particular area of control on January 20th and January 27th. is deals with the authority of the Lord, and then on February 3rd, deal with the covenant presence of God with his people. Okay? That's where we're headed, and we're on the beginning of this with, with the control. Um, I think this idea is a big, big problem for Americans. It may be more so than others. I really can't speak to that, but I think it is to Americans. We don't think of ourselves under the authority of anybody else. That's just how we're kind of built. Uh, we, re- we rebelled against the king and set up a nation, and then we didn't have a king. We didn't set up a king here intentionally, okay? So there's kind of in our roots of, of, of our nation, we don't think of lordship. And when we think, when, when our brains kind of try to kick into that gear, it's like something like, whoa, I don't really want a part of that because who do we want in control? Now, I think that's human nature as well. Everybody's probably that way. I just wonder if, if Americans aren't a little bit that way on steroids, if you will. Independence, did you say? Yeah, yeah. It's just kind of in, in our roots, so we, uh, we have trouble with that. Um, if you had a, a friend or acquaintance um, come to you and want to ask you a question, and you, okay, and then you find out that that person maybe has had a real tragedy in their life, um, lost a loved one, uh, lost a job, lost whatever, something didn't happen that was very important to that person. And they say to you, 
what good is prayer? I prayed. It didn't happen. My friends prayed. And it didn't happen. Churches prayed. And it didn't happen. Besides run, what would you do? Think about, I, I, thinking about that, I think it's, it may be a little harsh you know, recognizing that all of us fall into that kind of thinking sometimes and maybe think wrongly about things. So I don't, I don't want to be uh, harsh because I, I do these same things. But I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to be a little bit just to make a point. The person asking the question, how big is their God? How big is their God? Does that person's God have control? Do they have authority? Does that, is that God with them? And, and again, I know I'm being a little harsh because all of us fall into that trap of thinking sometimes, so don't don't push me too far there. That's a problem, isn't it? That's how we get caught up into thinking like that. And what do we do? We swap things and we say, I'm Lord because I know what I needed. And we really don't. So that's, that's switching some things. It's real important. And boy, I'm, I'm either the worst or close to it. I'd be, I'd be in a race for the worst of flipping that around and start thinking the way I need to, I want things to work out and being very disappointed when they don't. The place we start is the covenantal triad. If we get this lordship thing right and understand it, and there's a lot there to understand, the well is deep. It helps a lot. It helps a lot as we go along. So, with that little sermonette, I'll open it for questions or comments in that regard. Anybody have a have a thought? Boy. Thomas? Yeah, yeah, and how often do we fall into into our uh, traps of prayer? You know, we take set aside time, and boy, where does our mind go? I'll just speak for myself. Here's what I need. Here's what I see as the problems. That's where I'm, I'm going real often. And, and God wants to hear those things. He, he is one whose covenant presence is with us, and he wants to hear those things, but that's not all he is, is it? So it's, he's certainly not the bellhop. Dick? Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Well, he's saying that the, all of mankind's in an act of rebellion, and and to a certain, you know, we are. You know, and God God changes our hearts and moves us back, and sometimes we move a little slower than we should. But I, I think that he's making that point. He says it's more prevalent in democracies than in dictatorships. I don't know. I, I didn't hear. Rebellion. Yeah. I, yeah, the expression is suppressed, but uh, I think Mike's making the point that everybody's got it in their heart. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Right. I think that's, I agree with that. I think it, there's also trying to level the playing field, too. There's, there's not, there's a, just a little difference in, in, in him and us. There's a little, he's greater. There's a big difference between him and us. Somebody raised their hand here. Bonnie? A little add-on, kind of like well, I want to pray in Jesus' name. <laughs> yeah. Right. can't wait for them to talk and then you can't wait to find a duct tape to stop it that that uh, could be mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh I see yeah That's right. It's really big. So we're going to, uh, Brady?
derived. It's, it's derived from him. Is that would be another word. Uh, yeah, you're right. So it's derived and it's related because it came from God. It's different in that it's not total and sovereign control or authority. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, that's right. Letha? Absolutely, right. 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 Absolutely, that's a great point, and and thank you. That that's. That's a hazard to use an example like that. And I want to caution you that you can have people come ask you that question and their God's the same God you have. They're just right at the moment not seeing it all. So I, I just don't want to go too far there, but that's, that's, that's a very good point. So what we're going to do spending the rest of our time here, about 15 more minutes, um, is looking at just the beginning. Now remember next week going more into this control, control of God, we're going to look particularly at the example uh, right now, of God's sovereign control and how he demonstrated that, which we're very familiar with the story. I'm just going to hit a few places where he says, this is what I did, uh, when he defeats Egypt and, and Egypt's God. So we'll start in, in Exodus three nineteen and 20. It's just shortly after the verses we looked at earlier. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. Hey, these, let's deal with Moses is not normal times, is it? God's stretching out his hand and saying, those people are going to go and I'm going to do a lot of things. And you know the story well. He changes hearts, he sends all the plagues, he uses all sorts of things to make this happen. Next verse, just flip over to Exodus 12, 12. Remember, this, this is the final blow. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, 
and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Okay. God's telling us as mightily as He can in His Word who He is. And He was telling the Israelites and He's telling us now. Then you skip over to chapter 15. It's the Song of Moses, if you recall. One verse in that, verse 11. <clears throat> who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Moses watched all that, didn't he? And he saw the mighty hand of the Lord. Then he goes later on and visits with his father-in-law in Jethro. Chapter 18, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. So we see it just goes on. It's all through Exodus in there, these statements about God's mighty hand. Okay, yeah, good. Okay, make sure I get things synced up here. Yep, I got it, thank you. Oh, that's what's wrong. Wrong button. Okay, a few more verses on God's hand and uh, uh, wonders and mighty acts. Uh, uh, Exodus uh, 6, we looked at this passage a little earlier, but we didn't get quite this far down. So looking more, look, look in here at his, his arm, his hands, and just, just all the things that God does. So starting in verse 5, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Next, looking over at Exodus chapter 7, 3 through 5. Look what God does. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretched out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from, from among them. Is he in control? Absolute control, changing the heart of the kings 
and doing works of mighty acts. Mike? Yeah, and if you go through the plagues, I think it it's, doesn't switch necessarily back and forth. One time it'll say Pharaoh did this, his own heart, and the next time it'll say God hardened Pharaoh's, and the, Pharaoh's heart goes back and forth. Yeah, I think that what you, you can't miss, we're going to talk a little bit about that, a, a man's responsibility later on in this, in this series, but what you don't want to miss here is fundamental God is in control, and, and he shapes our hearts. He, he, we don't know. We, it's somewhat mysterious, but he does, and he is in control. Did I hear another hand? Letha? Everyone I'm matched up to a God? Wow. Okay. Interesting. It's an amazing picture. You know, we're, we're looking at one slice of history here, but as that Dennis is pointing out there, it uh, unfolds throughout, uh, throughout God's story. Uh, the other verses that we've looked at briefly, uh, Exodus 20, it's before he's introducing the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So God's expressing many times throughout Exodus, I am the one doing this, and I am in control. Remember what one passage said we read? The Israelites said, well, I don't believe all that. You know, their, their burden was too heavy. I can't, I can't go there. God said, I'm going to do it, and he did it. Uh, quote from Frame, The Lord is the one who controls all the forces of nature and history to deliver his people and thus to fulfill his covenant promise. All of it is in God's control. He's taking us somewhere. Okay, um, just a little bit more of that I am. You remember I talked about how difficult it is to translate that, those words, I am who I am. And so you can get a lot of renderings. You think about past and present tense and then different words for who can be what as well. So... Frame just kind of goes through there and, and points out the different possible renderings of that. I am what I am. I am who I am. I will be what I will be. I am because I am. 
I will be because I will be. I cause to be what I cause to be. I am present is what I am. I am the one who is. Now, I'm not trying to land on any of these and say you've got to pick one of these out to, and then scratch that what's in your Bible out and put one of these in. The point is, no matter how you translate that thing, there's something to do in those words, I am who I am, in the sovereignty and separateness, if you will, of God. Frame says, these phrases indicate that Yahweh is very different from us determining his own nature or his choices or even his own being without any dependence on us. Sovereign Lord, Brady's right. We get authority and things from him, but he's different. He's different. We'll look at just a few more. A few more passages. I just call him I am he. Deuteronomy 32 Uh, 39. So these passages through I am He stresses God's, again, God's sovereignty, especially in redemption. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Sovereign Lord. Isaiah 41, 4. Forty-one four. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. One more in Isaiah 43, starting in verse 11. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed, and there, is, there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God. Also henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Pretty strong statements on the Sovereign Lord. So before we go to conclusion, I'll stop there. We've covered quite a bit today. Um, Any comments and questions? Burning words you need to share? Rob.
Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, that's a great comment. I, the next three weeks, I showed you what we're going to be looking at. The next three weeks is going to be a nice ride, uh, understanding more of our Lord and, uh, and, and what his, his Lordship over us uh, means. So it's, it's going to be some really good stuff. Anybody else? Somebody might ask that. There is an answer. I, I remember Sproul one time, I don't remember what series or what, but he said if there's one molecule out of his control, then he's not sovereign. Yeah, and I think you see some of those in Scripture that it occurred. I don't, I don't think it's always right to read that he killed them and they're lost. He can kill them and they're saved. I mean, we don't know sometimes. You see guys really mess up and God may, may be in heaven, but God couldn't put up with any more of that here. I don't know. I don't think we'll ever know those kind of things, but he does do... Do that. That's, that's a good point. Dick? Quantum strangulation. Quantum We only have a couple minutes now, so you, can you get it done? Oh, you're not going to do it? Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, and somewhat, that's kind of how our understanding of God is. We understand a little more. You know, maybe my teacup that I mentioned earlier into the Pacific Ocean is a little bit bigger teacup, but it's still in the Pacific Ocean. But it grows, and we, we get a better understanding of, of, of God. So I want to finish today by uh, uh, looking at, at Psalm 93. Anybody else have a last comment that's not quantum physics or something? Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. 
He has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old, from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The last quote in Frame's book, Yahweh then is the sovereign, the Lord over all his creatures. I guarantee you, you have something to think about this week. We're dismissed.